Hi, welcome to this new podcast. This is Jan Dawson. I'm the Chief Analyst at Jackdaw Research. Uh, I am also a blogger. I blog at Beyond Devices and I contribute to the TechPinions uh, group blog as well with a number of other analysts and some of that content gets published in other places including Recode. Um, but I'm joined today by Aaron Miller who is a friend and former neighbor of mine who has an interesting history with Apple as well. And we're starting this podcast today. Uh, we are hoping that it will be a, a podcast that you will enjoy and something that you'll want to come back and listen to frequently. Uh, we're recording this the week before Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference. And so looking forward to WWDC is going to be the main topic of discussion today. Uh, but we may cover some other things as well. And uh, next week, we'll likely do a review of what Apple actually ends up announcing and digest that a little bit between us. Uh, but before we carry on, I wanted to give Aaron a chance to introduce himself. He, he may not be familiar to many of you, but I think Aaron has a really interesting history with Apple and perspective. And, and I'll hand over some time to him to talk about that. Hi, everybody. Yeah, so, you know, as a, my, my day job doesn't directly relate to Apple. I'm actually a professor at a business school. Um, but my uh, hobbies have always drawn me back to Apple and have led to some really interesting projects. I, I, I think what Yan is thinking of mostly and what I think has tied me most closely to Apple is I'm the author of several books on iMovie, a co-author with David Pogue on his Missing Manual series. And so with David, we've done a few editions of iMovie, The Missing Manual. Um, I also used to run a blog uh, called Unlocking iMovie. It was actually a blog I started as a hobby back when Apple released iMovie 08. Um, if you all remember, that uh, was a release that caused quite a bit of conflict within the Apple community. It was a huge change. Um, uh, uh, pioneered by Randy Evelos, but... Um, Anyway, it was just a really, it, it, that part has been a really fun ride. And I guess I call it a hobby in the same way that uh, Apple describes the Apple TV as a hobby. Um, meaning uh, there were times it took a lot of time and work, but uh, has always been really fun and satisfying. So, um, and I've been an Apple user since uh, I started college uh, back in the 90s. Uh, my first Mac was a, I guess this is like, this is where a Mac user really demonstrates their cred, right? As they say what their first <laughs> Mac was. Yeah. <clears throat> so my first one was a PowerBook 1400 CS. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. Great. Thanks, Aaron. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm, 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 my history with Apple is interesting too. Um, I do have a picture of myself using uh, a Mac back in somewhere in the mid 80s. Um, it was, I think, one of my parents' offices where they were using a Mac at the time. And that was probably my first experience with a Mac. But I didn't use a Mac regularly until much, much later. Um, I think probably until about 10, 15 years ago. Um, so I always, you know, was interested in the company, but mostly admired it from a distance and not as an active user. And then over the last 10 years, starting with I think a Mac Mini actually, um, and then graduating to uh, MacBooks and various other products, and obviously the iPhone and iPod when they came along, and various other things. So, uh, as a, as an Apple user, I think I have less longevity than you do, Aaron. But uh, I, I do uh, write about Apple professionally um, for these blogs and and for my research clients as well. Um, and uh, so that's kind of the angle that I come from. So I, I think we have different perspectives on all this and. And I'm looking forward to having a good conversation. Um, let's move on to WWDC then. Um, it's happening next week. We're recording this on Thursday, the week before. Um, at this point, there's a fair amount of 
headline clarity about what will and won't likely be announced at WWDC. It's obviously uh, utterly predictable that we're going to see a new version of iOS and OS X. Um, it's pretty predictable at this point that we're going to see finally the fruits of Apple's work in integrating Beats and iTunes and creating a new music subscription service. It now looks likely that we will not get either new Apple TV hardware or an Apple TV service, both of which have been heavily reported and rumored for the last several months. It looks like those have been pushed off. Um, we'll also get the watch SDK so that developers can start creating apps directly for the watch. Um, so in other words, apps that can be independent on the watch itself rather than running from the iPhone and then having a companion app on the watch. Um, and there may be various other bits and pieces too. Apple obviously surprised us with Swift last year um, and a lot of the detail um, will be a surprise too. But, uh, you know, it's always interesting. Last year I wrote a piece shortly before WWDC running through my personal wish list as an Apple user for what I wanted to see. And, and about half of what I asked for um, on that list actually was there in some form. Some of the continuity and handoff stuff definitely related to some of what I asked for. I think it's interesting to have seen that the Apple community over the last um, few months really talking a lot about stability. And it sounds like that may be a focus next week as well in terms of stabilizing some of the uh, OS stuff in iOS and OS 10, making the, the operating systems more stable, more reliable, less buggy, fixing some of the glitches and bugs and there have been some over the last couple of years with both operating systems. So that's something that, that I'm looking forward to. I haven't noticed either of the current versions being particularly buggy at the moment, uh, but I know other people have had some issues with them. But uh, Aaron, what are you looking forward to next week? Anything in particular you'd like to see Apple announce? Well, I am looking forward to the stability changes that have been rumored. Um, you know, Apple's done this in the past, obviously, with uh, Snow Leopard, Mountain Lion. Um, you know, it, it, one thing I've noticed is that <clears throat> Apple technology tends to mature. I think it's something that more distant observers don't really appreciate. Uh, and it's usually in the maturing of Apple stuff that it really becomes sort of iconic, important in the way people use it. I mean, to give you an example, and I'm not kidding, right now I'm looking at my dock and the number four is appearing twice for whatever reason in my iCal icon like overlapping in a weird way that is definitely a bug. I mean, what else could it be? And, uh, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a ton of work in refinement. You know, it's the old 80-20 rule, and that, that last 20% takes 80% of the work. It's something that I know Apple appreciates, um, but uh, it just takes time. And I think the last year of effort from the previous WWDC is going to demonstrate a lot of that. You know, I, I think they're going to be getting applause from developers, especially when it comes to the stability stuff. Yeah, that's an interesting thought, too. Did you feel like the balance has been about right over the last couple of years? I mean, I know some people have felt like things were moving too fast um, and that they were perhaps prioritizing lots of new features over that stability. Do you feel like the balance needs to shift a little bit? I, I think it does now, but I wouldn't say that it needs to be that way in the future. Um, you know, I think, for example, the complaints people are having right now about on the Apple Watch, you know, how apps run poorly, slowly, they're very limited in what they can do. Uh, I know I, I've seen other commentators say, you know, why not just hold off? Um, but, uh, you know, Apple launched the iPhone without an app store. I, I think there's something about just sort of pushing. Apple knows that early adopters have a tendency to be very forgiving. Um, you know, uh, the upgrade cycle on OS 10, you know, it takes most people months. Some people it takes years to, 
to get to a current version because they just don't think about it. They just get in the habit of sort of dismissing software update notifications. Yeah, absolutely. My wife's definitely a good example of that. Um, you know, her, her Mac is running, I hate to think what it's running, but it's certainly a couple of years old, I think, and she just <laughs> yes. resists resists all efforts to upgrade the software just because she, she feels like it's new, it's different, you know. Um, we're, we're kind of funny that way, actually. She likes to change things around the house, and I like everything to stay the same. So I like the furniture layout to stay the same and all that kind of stuff. I'm utterly open to any kind of technological change. So I always upgrade all my software at the earliest possible opportunity and so on. Um, she's the reverse, so she's always changing stuff around the house, but is utterly resistant to changing you know, and updating software. You know, I have a theory about that because I relate. Um, my, th it's a mystery problem, right? I, I think where yes. we resent change is where there's mystery ahead, and and this is why early adopters I think are so forgiving because they they sort of have a, a trust in Apple that, you know, things are going to come back around. They're willing to put up with the headaches. The people who, for, for example, are happy to install beta software, um, you know, in the public beta programs. It's that mystery problem, and. Uh, you know, I'm the same way in my house. I, I can't tell you how many times I've come home and seen my wife painting a room again. Right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm like, that was a good color. We had stability. But I think it reflects more her expertise and thoughtfulness about the way she wants our, our home to look mm -hmm. and, and about my total ineptitude. And it all just looks like, you know, uncertain mystery to me. So Right. Yeah, I, I think I feel very much the same way. Um, yeah, I think the stability stuff is something I'm looking forward to. I'm always interested in new features. I always find that you know new versions of iOS and OS X just bring a handful of things that I think, wow, that's really helpful. I'm really glad that's there and going to give me that incentive to upgrade as well. I really haven't had stability issues, to be honest. I used an early beta of uh, Mavericks, and I did find that incredibly unstable, but um, subsequent ones were much better, and I really haven't had any issues since. And I've been largely running the latest version available um, from the beta channel uh, since that time. And same with iOS. I've been upgrading to more recent versions as they've become available and, and haven't really had any problems. And I think it perhaps helps that I'm using mostly pretty new and pretty powerful hardware. Um, from what I've seen, I think some of the issues have mostly affected slightly older machines. Um, but pretty much all the hardware I'm using is pretty recent vintage with the exception of my Mac Pro. That's my main sort of workhorse Mac, um, but which is extremely powerful, has lots of cores and lots of memory and, and so on. And um, so it seems to perform pretty well no matter what I run on it. Right. Um, I, I will yeah, say, go ahead. You know, when I think about the, the bugginess problem, I, I think for most people, it's one or two nagging bugs that have to do with sort of their particular use of their computer. You know, I, I, I wouldn't by any means call OS X or iOS right now unstable by any means, yeah. but, but I think everybody sort of has their pet problem, their pet bug that bugs them. Well, maybe not everybody, but a lot of people do. Mm. Like, for example, for me, you know, it, because my university uses Exchange for email, uh, I, I use, you know, Apple Mail with my Exchange and iCal with my Exchange account. The, the, the problem I have, and I've done some troubleshooting, I've, I've looked in, you know, the, the support forums on, on Apple's website. The problem I have is invitations. You know, invitations mysteriously with this latest iOS, with this latest OS 10 upgrade. Notifications, when I tap accept, you know, it, when I click accept where it worked before, it doesn't work now. It just sort of sits there for, I don't know, maybe 30 seconds. The email eventually disappears on its own, mm. and then the appointment never shows up in my calendar. <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's, you know, it, when you have people setting up meetings via Exchange, especially the Windows users who, for them, it works obviously 
just fine. Mm. Um, it makes them, it makes me look like I'm not being polite or attentive to them because it, the other thing that happens is they never get a notification on the back uh, end that I accepted right. the appointment. Yeah. You know, previous to, you know, previous to this version of OS 10, I never had any trouble with that. Right. And so it's, it, that's just an example of a pet bug. That's not going to bother very many people. And there mm-hmm. are a lot of exchange users on OS 10 that don't seem to have this issue, but it's just been one yeah. that's, that's stuck with me. Yeah. Um, one of the things that got announced last year was continuity and handoff, where continuity is kind of the concept and handoff is name given to a specific set of features within that concept. Um, uh, that was something I was looking forward to last year. It was something I kind of asked for, and I, I felt like I got some of what I was looking for. One of the interesting things for me is that with the watch um, and the phone and the way they work together with handoff specifically, but also with notifications, I've, I've really felt like I wish that could go further. Um, in the sense that with notifications in particular, as long as you've got your watch on and unlocked, they don't, the same notifications simply don't do anything on your phone noticeably. They don't buzz, they don't ring uh, if you're not actively using your phone. Uh, but when you are actively using your phone, they still do buzz and they show up on the screen and all that kind of thing. So it's this very smart sort of management of notifications where they show up on the device that you're most likely to want them to show up on right now. And what I've always wanted is for that to show up on the Mac as well, for that to, same kind of smart concept to show up where if I'm actively using my phone, the notification should just be muted on the Mac. Maybe they still arrive in the background and they're in the notification center, but they're not uh, buzzing or pinging or whatever else. Uh, and similarly, though, if I'm actively using the Mac, then I wish that all notifications on my phone and watch would be silent uh, for the same applications. And that doesn't seem to be the case yet. And that's something that I was hoping that continuity would bring last time around and I'm still kind of hoping for this time around you know I'm frequently now sitting at my keyboard typing away I've got tweetbot open for Twitter and yet I'm still getting notifications on my wrist Um, you know buzzing and so I'm constantly looking at my wrist to see something I can already see right in front of me just to kind of register that I've seen the notification on my wrist or just to check if it's actually that or something else and I wish you know that could go just a little bit further a little bit smarter yeah, it's like it's like the shotgun approach to notifications, right? Yeah. If you're yeah. sitting at your computer and your phone or your iPad's on your desk and your watch is on your wrist, it's like a notification is a shotgun blast. And it sort of hits everything. Yeah. And although not all the BBs from the shotgun shot apparently travel at the same speed, right? Because sometimes your phone <laughs> chimes in True. You know, 10 yeah. seconds later. Yeah. But uh, no, I agree. I, you know, I think, in fact, that's, I, I think there's, if there's a moment that makes me feel conspicuous as an Apple user, because I'm all into, you know, uh, you know, phone, computer, iPad and all that. Um, That moment makes me feel conspicuous because it's like I see this phone pinging, this iPad pinging and my Mac pinging all at the same time. And it sort of makes me feel like, wow, do I really need all these things? You know, obviously they really are useful. Otherwise I wouldn't have them. But, um, Mm. but it's that moment of the, the shotgun notification that, uh, that makes me feel like, wow, I have a lot of expensive Apple hardware in front of me. So right, yeah, absolutely. No, and I, I have I have two different iPads um, on loan from Apple at the moment. So there's a Mini and a, and a an Air. Um, and the funniest thing is when I'm sitting at my desk and my computer goes, my phone goes, and both iPads go with the same <laughs> yeah. notifications. It just feels utterly <laughs> ridiculous, um, yeah. and feels like something that, that could be fixable. And obviously, that's an outlier case to have quite that many devices lying around, but. But three is probably not out of the question for many people. And, and with a watch, right. four, four probably isn't either, actually. It's an um, interesting technological problem, though. I mean, th- you know, do you solve it based on mouse cursor movement? I, I mean, mm-hmm. for example, I'll step away from my desk to right. sit in a chair to do some reading. 
And, uh, you know, when I'm reading on my iPad, uh, sitting away from my computer, you know, there's maybe a five minute, you know, I think yeah. I have it set. I think I have the sleep set to about five minutes on my computer. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. But when I step away from my computer and I'm on my iPad, I don't know, it seems like an interesting problem I, I, as far as the, how you saw that. I guess maybe you look at the activity of the other device and whichever one is getting more active input becomes the target for notifications. But right, right. Yeah. Um, one other thing I wanted to talk about was just this kind of subscription music service. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, Aaron. I, I know I've, I've written about it somewhat already. I wrote a post for Tech Pinions called Reinventing My Music. And to my mind, one of the things that Apple could do uniquely well is combining the music that you already own with a subscription service that fills in gaps. Um, I think one of the challenges with Spotify and Google Music and, and any number of other music services that I've tried over the last few years is that you, you're basically starting from scratch most of the time. Um, right. Some of these music services do have a way for you to import your existing music, but it's often a really cumbersome and tedious process. And oftentimes it kind of sits you know, mentally sort of over here as opposed to the subscription music that sits over there. Um, and I feel like what Apple could do uniquely well is the fact that many people already store the music that they've owned and bought over the years in iTunes. And a subscription music that's closely tied to that allowed you to easily kind of supplement that while retaining a sense of ownership over, quote, my music uh, could be quite powerful and could be something that nobody else has really been able to do. Um, Microsoft had a music service, has a music service actually still on its Windows phone devices that does this quite well, actually. You still have to find a way to get your music onto the device in the first place. But once you have you can easily add things to your library from the subscription music service, which I really like as a model because you're not having to go find all the stuff you know you like already all over again uh, and you're not having to kind of live in these two separate worlds, but they're sort of tightly integrated. Uh, And yet, as I say, with Microsoft, you still have to find a way to get your music there in the first place, which is probably quite tedious for most people and and something I wouldn't bother doing. With Apple, they've got it all there already and could be very seamless and if you look at things like iCloud Match, you know, a lot of people have already potentially told Apple what music they own, uh, and so it could be quite easy for them to implement that. So I, I feel like that could be a component. It seems like the human curation is going to be a huge element from a good discovery perspective um, with whatever Apple does. But I'm, I'm curious to see what else it might be, how else it's going to set it apart. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Aaron. Well, yeah, you know, um, I think the interesting thing for Apple when it comes to switching to a subscription model, and I say switching deliberately because I think that's kind of the inevitable result of this, Yeah, it, it is when you have, you know, essentially iTunes vast catalog at your disposal based on paying the, the, the subscription premium, uh, you, you know, there's, there's a far less compelling reason to have the music on your phone. I, I, I think the constraints... Or, or on your or on your Mac, I think the constraints are that, you know, you you'd rather have the files themselves, if you're going to be offline, right? Yeah. Which can happen in various situations like traveling. You know, I have a friend who's a a, a runner, and he does the sort of ultra marathons up in the mountains kind of thing. So he's right pretty regularly in places where, where he doesn't have a data connection, and so for him, owning the music makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, and then I think the other constraint is size, obviously. You know, it, it, it's the iPhone has distressingly been stuck at essentially the same, you know, storage tiers for, mm-hmm. for years and years now. Um, and, uh, you know, if you have an iPhone and you don't have a data connection, the other constraint you're dealing with is just the size of, fi- you know, files storage. that you can put on your yeah. phone. Right. 
And, and that's why iPod. That's why Apple kept the classic iPod around for as long as they did. Um, was simply because it was a it was a massive storage device for people yeah. that wanted their music mobile, but their whole library, you know, with them. Mm-hmm. Um, even now, my iTunes library is the largest thing on my phone. You know, I yeah, it's yeah, I'm 20, sure that's 20 gigs, true for many people. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then as far as the so so I think, but I I do think it's going to be a permanent switch for Apple. I think people are going to be buying music less and less. I, I think honestly, I think one of the biggest hurdles that Apple has is that you know iTunes on Windows is not universally loved by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, it mm-hmm. seems to be software that people re- it used to be QuickTime that all Windows users resented, um, <laughs> and now it seems to be iTunes and. Uh, you know, obviously the iTunes platform is much, much bigger than the Mac platform. And, uh, and, and I, I'll be curious. I would, I would love it if they came out with a, a revamped iTunes. I, I think, I think iTunes, Apple has this sort of cycle that they go through with some of their key software platform, their key software products where they sort of get cluttered with features over time. Mm-hmm. I really think iTunes is there. Um, I'll be honest. I, that, the latest refresh that they did, you know, roughly a year ago, to the UI, uh, I can't tell you how many people have complained to me, you know, in conversation about how the, how confusing the new UI is on iTunes. Yeah. So yeah, there are a lot that's, of. Layers. So that's one thing I'd like to see is that <clears throat> iTunes gets sort of pared down and simplified. Uh, yeah. I'd love to see a web version of iTunes. That's what I'd really like to uh, see. Just, it's you know, in some ways it feels like. And I wrote I wrote a piece yesterday for for Beyond Devices about. Um, you know what Apple does on non-Apple devices, and specifically, I was talking about Windows. But there's obviously this potential that this new subscription music service ends up on Android, as Beats is today. Um, but in looking at that, it was really clear to me how much of the recent innovation um, that Apple's brought to the market on Windows exists only as a web app um, in the, behind the iCloud.com domain. Um, and yet, you know, Apple's always been really resistant to web apps, um, and even for cloud services, which you you know instinctively think of as being kind of combination of mobile and web on the front end. A lot of the time, Apple doesn't really prioritize the web side of things, and, and iTunes has never existed as a web product. You get individual pages on iTunes on the web. Um, that's sort of a way to lead you into the app um, if you don't have it installed, but. Um, they, they've never done web that way. And yet for stuff that's essentially about cloud storage and cloud subscriptions and so on, the web makes a ton of sense, especially on Windows uh, PCs, for example. So um, I'd be really curious to see them do something with iTunes on the web as well as kind of reinventing the software. I think with the software, the challenge is just that you've got so many layers. You've got music, you've got video, you've got books, you've got apps and so on, and not just the ones you own, but then there's the store for all of those things as well, which is, you know, on a phone is actually in several different apps and on the desktop is actually one big app. In some ways, I wonder if they need to split store from, um, you know, owned content or, or, you know, uh, content I have a right to use anyway as we move to a subscription model. Um, But yeah, it feels like there's there's room for quite a bit more move away from the kind of traditional way that they've done this into something different that's simpler and less layered. Well, you know, you make an interesting point there because, you know, when you have a streaming service, which I, which I think has a reasonable likelihood of becoming pretty central um, to the new version of iTunes, it's not really a store anymore. It's a music library, right? right I mean, I mean right. it's a music library with a buy button next to mm-hmm, each song mm-hmm. if it's not already yeah. downloaded and, and yours alone. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what's interesting is that separates music in a pretty substantial way from the other digital stuff that Apple sells, right? Because yeah. the books are not on unlimited subscription. The uh, although books are in a separate app, right? I mean, the store for books yes. is is in yeah. A the iTunes, app. <clears throat> yeah, yeah they, but, they recently separated now. But but video, for example, you know, I mean, TV and movies, they're going to be a different class of media now, and mm. not just because there's a visual component, but because there's not a subscription component. Right. Um, although, you know, that would be, I, I, deep down, I hope that's next, is a yes. subscription for, for video, at least television. And, yep. you know, with the rumors on the horizon with, with Apple having subscription television, my hope is that they do it in a smart way that's basically just sort of, you know, it's it's an on-demand kind of yeah. thing, you know, mm-hmm. where where we're watching live, you know, is is really secondary at best. I think watching live mm-hmm. really only matters if you're, you know, a hardcore follower of a show or you're watching the sports. I guess yeah. there's news too, but... Um, yeah, but news you get... shifted a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think sports is the last major category. And this, there was something else I wrote about a while ago was, you know, what's the role of live in an Apple TV service? It makes it much more complex. And if you look at HBO now, it's entirely on demand. There is no live element to that at all. It's just entirely on demand. Shows turn up there right after they become available live. So there's very little delay in that sense, but there's no live component where you can go and see what's on now, quote unquote. Um, you know, you you just watch specific shows that you happen to be interested in. And I think that gets a little harder to manage when you have a huge amount of content, when it goes beyond a single provider of content. Uh, but yeah, on-demand feels like increasingly the way that we want to consume things. And, and DVR and uh, VOD libraries and so on from major pay TV providers are kind of jury-rigging what we really want, which is just to watch what we want when we want on the device that we want to. And... and uh, it feels like you know Apple should be in a great position to deliver that. The question is just how big is the on-demand library, uh, and what does that cost? Yeah, because it, you know you don't want it to be vastly more expensive than what you're paying today. The, the the problem that Apple has with sort of championing that cause is is iTunes itself, right? I mean, they were so yeah. immensely successful in getting the music labels to to sort of join in on what at the time appeared this tiny little platform effort. Um, you know, Apple basically took over the music industry for a decade. Yeah, uh, it's only now with the streaming services that Apple's hold is getting that their grip is getting loosened. And uh, you know, it's the, the the television and the and the movie executives have this memory of what happened to the music industry, where they essentially lost control of their content. And and I'll be honest, every time I read a quote from a from a from a, a an executive along those lines. It just, it, it feels more like fear than anything else, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it feels like it's just, there's something primal and, uh, yeah. you know, built into their attitudes. Uh, there's just yeah. so much uncertainty about the future. And it's sort of like they, they sort of, I don't know, it, it sort of feels like, you know, the, if they dig in their heels, they feel like the future doesn't have to come, which right. still mm-hmm. is an attitude that baffles me. But, you well, it's know. classic denial, isn't it? Yeah. Right, yeah. And people get yeah. detached. I mean, they get into positions where they surround mm-hmm. themselves with people that just tell them what they want to hear and, it's easy to get detached from reality. Yeah, there's that famous quote, and I wish I could remember who it is. I'll probably look it up later, but it's about, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to convince somebody of something when their whole worldview depends on them not believing it, basically. Right. Um, and, uh, and it's much more eloquent than that in the original quote. But, that, you know, it's, it's really tough when you've convinced yourself that your entire future depends on things being a certain way 
when things start to look like they're not that way, the first instinct is to deny it, essentially. And, but I do think there's a parallel here between when Napster and so on first came out and then iTunes came along. And even though I think there's some resentment about the impact Apple's had on the music industry, I think in reality it, it somewhat saved it from itself because it was in that same mode of denial back then and it could easily have led to just giving the whole market away to piracy and file sharing and so on, instead of which Apple established that there still was a willingness to pay for music, gave people a way to do it easily and, and at a reasonable cost and, and in the process I think saved the industry from a lot of those changes. And I think at this point it's not quite as dramatic because the subscription music services are all happening with the permission of the record labels, but the free part of the the subscription music services, um, you know, Spotify's ad-supported version, for example, pays far less than the paid versions do. And so in some ways, I think there's an analogy here where the sort of free ad-supported stuff is something the industry's gone along with because it hasn't felt it had much choice. But Apple could again be the company that comes in, teaches people to value music enough to pay a certain amount for it a month again, and gives them really strong reasons to do so. And it feels like the Apple base is probably the most aligned set of customers with that worldview to start with because they're used to paying for uh, music through iTunes and so on. They're used to paying, you know, uh, for the premium of Apple devices and so on. So it feels like it could be a good fit. So you know, I think on balance, I'm pretty positive about the prospects for an Apple music service, but I'm really curious to see the details. Yeah, me too. I, I think there's an integration advantage that Apple has by doing a music service. Um, you know, there's just a sort of seamlessness to it across devices that uh, that that has the potential to beat out every other. I mean, obviously that's for Apple users, but like the all-in kind of Apple users. But um, and uh, you know, it, going back to television just quickly, it, as you're talking, it occurred to me that you know another thing that I'm hopeful about with television is that it has a heritage of subscription-based. You know, with the cable industry, like mm -hmm. it has a heritage yeah. of being driven by subscription models and. And so I won't be surprised if television at least comes around more quickly. I mean, that's essentially what HBO has done uh, with HBO Now, is they've just detached the subscription model from the cable model, right? Mm -hmm. It's still a subscription service. I mean, you don't, yeah. uh, you know, people aren't buying individual episodes of Game of Thrones. Um, they're subscribing to HBO on a monthly basis. Um, and uh, and so hopefully TV comes around more quickly and... and uh, you know, maybe if Apple can report, hey, look at all these subscriptions we've got in the music service, television is, is more willing to move along more, you know, much more quickly. I think movies are an interesting outlier in that case because mm -hmm. we've always we've always bought movies. Right. In fact, really, it's it, buying movies is, in fact, probably a minority. What we usually do is pay to watch a movie once, right? That's what the right. rental model is about. That's what yeah. uh, movie the, theaters the are about. theaters are about. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's hard to imagine there being a... It, Netflix is obviously... You know, bucking that trend, but but you know, Netflix doesn't exactly have, you know, a current, fresh, immediate library right. in the same way that reflects what's in movie theaters. So yeah, yeah, no, I I think I I'm really bullish about the prospect for an Apple TV subscription service, but the challenge is the local and the sports stuff. I think if you just drop that, it gets a lot easier, and the live that's associated with that, then I think it gets a lot easier. But it also gets a lot less compelling for anybody who wants to watch the NFL or baseball or basketball or whatever um, right. in the respective seasons for those sports. So Well, and you know, sports challenge. sports feels like the big thing, but and you wrote about this before about local yeah. being probably the bigger hurdle, right? Because mm -hmm. the nice thing about sports from Apple's perspective is it's a relatively concentrated 
group of of media companies to negotiate with. I mean, you've got obviously ESPN is the biggest one, but then you've also got Fox, Fox Sports, NBC Sports, CBS, right? And but, but they're all basically the large large broadcasters. The the problem with local is you know all these local news stations they're all affiliates, but they're independent and. Uh, and, and I think local is going to be a, a technical headache that somebody is going to have to solve, which you've already talked about. But, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you know, I think local TV is is still really important. Most people in, encounter, engage with local television on, on a on a relatively frequent basis, and and I think it'd be a shame for local to go away too. You know, there's just something yeah. about being able to know what's going on around you, you know, in your community, and not just sort of at a global scale. Yeah, yeah, and it would be a shame if Apple was a part of that going away. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see that, and obviously it doesn't sound like we're going to see that next week. Yeah. Um, any other sort of things you're looking forward to next week, things you're particularly kind of curious about? or? So I, I am still kind of holding out hope for something, but I'm, I'm, I'm based on Brian Chen's report in the New York Times, I'm not sure it's going to happen anymore, but I'm still kind of holding out hope for a, an SDK for the Apple TV. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think gaming on the Apple TV could be a massive thing for an unexpectedly massive thing for Apple in the same way gaming on the iPhone was. I mean, you know, handheld gaming was owned, uh, you know, by by the likes of, you know, Nintendo and got completely demolished uh, by the iPhone and the iPod Touch. And mm-hmm. I think I think television based gaming uh, has the potential for that. I realize I'm evoking the ire of a lot of the hardcore gamers with Xboxes and, and, and Playstations. But, but, but I think the truth is, you know, most people that would game on a television would do it uh, sort of casually. And yeah. so I don't think you need an intense platform to be able to game. And I'm curious if Apple's going to be pushing an SDK out that will be functional on the, you know, the current Apple TV, the, the third generation one. And the reason I'm still holding out hope is because I can't stop looking at the WWDC logo for this year Mm -hmm. and, you know, the epicenter of change and that dark rounded corner square (laughs) that's sitting in the middle of it looks like an Apple TV, you know, and that wasn't my original observation. I can't remember who I read that first pointed that out, Mm -hmm. but I can't stop seeing that every time I look at it. And and I realize that also is going to have a lot to do with HomeKit and Apple's already you know, made it informally public that the that the third generation Apple TV is going to be a home kit center. Yeah. Um, but, uh, um, but uh, you know, I'm still holding out hope that Apple will do an SDK that will work on the third generation Apple TV. Because the other advantage they have with that is it's, it's, it's you know, a, an incredibly cheap entry to gaming yeah. on the television. Uh, you know, yeah, 69 that's bucks a, is a small exactly price to point. pay for casual gaming. And enough people in their homes have iPads and, and you know iPhones that the remote issue you know isn't a terrible problem because people have to, you know enough people with Apple TVs have a touchscreen Apple device that they can use to play these games until Apple yeah. launches the new hardware. So right, absolutely. No, I think that's precisely the point. I think you know you've got this bifurcation at the moment between hardcore gamers that are willing to spend you know four hundred bucks on a console and then you know, anywhere between $50 and $100 for a lot of games and things like that on an individual basis and play those on the consoles. And these are people who spend hours doing this stuff. And then on the other hand, you've got mobile gaming where it's essentially mostly casual. It's on the device you happen to have with you. It's probably in spare moments here or there on the train or the bus or waiting for an appointment or just for a few minutes in the evening while you're sitting on the couch or whatever. You know, these people are never going to pay for an Xbox or a PlayStation 
let alone you know lots of games for it but they might well spend a dollar or five dollars or whatever to buy an app that they're going to spend a few minutes in here and there and suddenly you transfer that to the tv and perhaps even make it social so that you know you move from the model where today airplay is kind of one-to-one connectivity between phone and tv but you move to a situation where you can have multiple phones or ipads or whatever hooked up to the same tv playing a game socially based on several devices that you have in the room you know that could be really interesting you add game center where you can now be playing at somebody who's somewhere else um, who's also got the same setup and to your point, you know, $69 price point on the Apple TV if it really does work on the current hardware uh, would be really interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I felt like this was the next logical step for Apple for ages. I also look at Roku, um, which has had an open app model for, for years now. And some of the interesting channels that show up there, a lot more niche um, and s- sort of segmented content there, whether it's, you know, old TV shows that you can get channels for or... Um, subscription, you know, TV models for, you know, English TV shows or Indian ones or uh, Italian ones or whatever it might be, or particularly family-friendly stuff or religious programming or whatever. You know, there's so much innovation that's happened in the App Store for iOS that you feel like at least the same amount of information, innovation will happen on the Apple TV. So it's not just about gaming, but it's also about the other content that you could get on the Apple TV as well. So, yeah, I'm really excited about that prospect, and I do hope it's announced next week. Um, but certainly I would expect it to be announced when the Apple TV hardware comes out. Right. Uh, if it isn't announced this coming week, that's another thing that I'm kind of excited about. Yeah, me too. I, you know, with a, with a, with an Apple TV SDK, there are all these implications that I, I don't think we've all really thought through all the way. I mean, for, for example, you know, one of the things that a lot of the TV people talk about is this second screen phenomenon. You know, the idea that people are sort of like sharing time between their phone or tablet as they're watching TV. It might be because somebody sort of makes a comment, they want to Google it and find out what's going on, you know, maybe a joke with a reference they don't understand, or, you know, they might be tweeting with friends as they're watching. I think that sort of thing happens a lot with stuff like Game of Thrones. What's interesting with the Apple TV is that with an SDK, you know, you could picture creative developers sort of baking stuff in so that the second screen is diminished at least a little bit. I guess the, the remote, whatever it is, would count as a second screen, but... I'm imagining like a Bloomberg type device, right? Where there's video content coming through and text content coming through and, and you know, the, the television for the people that want it and the app developers that make it could be, you know, a lot more than just delivering video or a gaming screen, but there could be a, kind of a lot going on. I think an yeah. SDK opens the doors yeah. wide for that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is it gets really interesting when you get to 4K TV. And I'm not sure we're going to see that right away. But 4K, just because of the increased number of pixels on the screen, a lot of the demos that I've seen at trade shows and things for 4K TV, I mean, a lot of them just the picture looks fantastic. But the more interesting demos I've seen basically say, look, we've got all this screen real estate. We've got this additional number of pixels now. What can we do with those additional pixels? And a lot of the time it is more interactive content or side-by-side kind of video with text or something interactive or whatever. Um, so I think there's a lot of interesting potential there. I think you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. So, yeah, so I guess that's one of the things I'm still kind of holding out hope for. I wouldn't say yeah. that I'm necessarily optimistic. The problem with the Apple TV is is that uh, the current generation is a couple generations back as far as its processing power goes. Now, mm-hmm. I- iPhones have been running games for years, and so there would be a certain level but of gaming available. Luckily, the televisions that Apple TVs are hooked up to don't have right now, you know, overwhelming resolution, you know, they don't have to, the Apple TV doesn't have to push out an incredible number of pixels. 
But yeah. I do think if they do an SDK that works on the Apple TV 3, the current one, um, I, I think developers are, some developers are going to notice that they have to scale things back just because the hardware is not as powerful as what's in iPhones and iPads right now. Yeah, and that's the one thing that makes me wonder whether they'll hold off until they have the new hardware because it feels un-Apple-like to sort of announce something like this and then have it be handicapped right out of the gate. Well, and that's the thing about Brian Chen's report that's so interesting to me. You know, I, I think Apple in their keynotes always comes across as like having every detail nailed down, you know, uh-huh. like the, the, there's no risk. At least it doesn't give yeah. the appearance of any risk. But all mm-hmm. the stories you read about Apple keynotes behind the scenes is that, you know, they're really like walking a tightrope on these things. Yeah. I, I mean, the little tiny things could go wrong. I, I love reading the stories about the original iPhone announcement. Oh, yes. That's and, you know, one. and yeah. so how it just feels like, you know, the whole thing could have exploded on Apple. But. But they have this really deliberate, exhaustive rehearsal process. I think they go through the keynote enough times before they actually deliver it that that that's when they make the call. Say, you know, is this mm-hmm. too risky? And and it wouldn't right. surprise me at all if the you know if if the if the the new hardware just wasn't quite ready. You know, the right. the problem that Apple has because of that now is that they've got their entire well not their entire but a big chunk of their developer army all assembled. Those that aren't going to be there are going to be watching and paying attention. And this is the moment you announce an SDK, right? Absolutely. Be- because yeah. you can get into the technical details. You're going to mm-hmm. have staff on hand to answer questions of developers. You know, this is the moment. And if Apple has to push off the SDK as well as the hardware right now, I, I-, I can't imagine that they're enjoying that. I imagine they're no, pretty frustrated no, no. with that situation. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, with Apple, new Apple TV hardware seemed like it was going to be paired with three things, right? So Apple TV subscription service, HomeKit uh, and that role as a hub, and then um, what we've just been talking about, and you know, it feels like the Apple TV hardware has been postponed, the the um, the TV service has been postponed. You know, if those things were planned, which it seems likely they were, um, the HomeKit hub that's happening anyway with version three, and now the SDK, it's kind of up in the air. So it feels like a lot of stuff's all tied up together there, and it could all get pushed back together. But it'd be a shame if it did. Yeah, it wouldn't be the first time it's happened though. I, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, stuff gets pushed back, and I, I think the watch is an interesting example of that because all the rumors seem to indicate that the watch was coming a lot sooner than it did, yeah. and then they did the, you know, the fall announcement leading up to the spring mm-hmm. launch, which they did with other platform with other devices too. Um, yeah, I think that was a script that they basically followed. Um, right. But it does feel like the watch took longer than the rumor mill, um, you know, was expecting. So, mm-hmm. but that's Apple's way, right? I, I think that, I think yeah. one of the attributes that Apple has is they're incredibly patient. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great. Well, I think we're at about forty-five minutes here, and I think that's probably about as long as we want to go. So, thank <laughs> yeah. you, Aaron. I appreciate you joining me. And thanks, uh, Anna. I had a great time. Uh, look forward to to doing this again uh, next week as we review what was announced at WWDC. Um, if you're listening to this, we'd love to hear your feedback. Um, you know, did you enjoy it? What did you like? What did you not like? Um, please share with your friends and. Twitter followers and all the rest will obviously be promoting this on Twitter as well. But I would love to hear from you and hope you join us again next week.